1: This is the Minnesota Tim Podcast, and joining me on the Minnesota Tim Podcast today is Star Tribune sports columnist, Lavelle E. Neal III. Lavelle, thank you so much for taking time to join the Minnesota Tim Podcast today.
2: Hey, thanks a lot for having me. It's a pleasure.
1: Lavelle, I wanted to talk a little bit about the Minnesota Twins and all the moves that they made at the trade deadline. Mm -hmm. You covered the Twins for over 20 years for the Star Tribune, and you still cover them as a sports columnist. What did you make of the trades at the trade deadline? They traded for four players, three pitchers. Do you think these moves were moves for the twins to become legitimate title contenders or just to win the division?
2: Uh, I think it's think that there are chances of winning the division. Um, whether or not they can make a run in the postseason um, remains to be seen. Um, but this team had some flaws, and they addressed those flaws. Uh, for the last month or so, I've been... I've been uh, advocating that the Twins need to list at least three pitchers before the deadline, and they came up with three. Um, we all saw how things are going. The starters aren't going deep enough, and the relievers are have struggling trying to get trying to cover the nine, twelve, fourteen outs they have to cover. And so teams have been attacking the Twins in that in those middle innings. That's been like the soft underbelly belly of that pitching staff there because well, the average start Major League Baseball is five and a third innings. Um, twin starters are. Getting out there after five. So now you've got six, seven, four innings, 12 outs to go. And um, the the bullpen has been good enough. And Emilia Bagan has been used in all kinds of roles and he has failed in all kinds of roles. So they needed to address the bullpen as well as the starting rotation. Now, if the Twins have a lead after six innings, you can get Michael Fulmer in the seventh, you can get John Duran in the eighth, and you get uh, Lopez in the ninth. Or you can use Duran in the seventh and eighth innings and then go to Lopez in the ninth. So Rocco now has a path to success now when they're trying to protect the lead that has cost them, I would say, about six or seven games this year. They should be in first place by uh, double digits, but because uh, the bullpen was giving up leads, uh, they've given Cleveland and the White Sox hope. I like Tyler Molly, the right-hander, because he is, he's, he's used to going six innings, sometimes into the seventh. I like the fact that he's can throw. he been able to throw 100, 110 pitches in an outing, uh, he's kind of an anti-Rocko-type pitcher because he's able to enter the third time through a batting order and have success. I think if you look at the Twins, how a lot of teams are looking at pitching staff now, alarm bells are going off once a pitcher gets through the batting order twice. You know, And, th- and there's numbers that suggest that. But to me, the paint, every pitcher with the same brush, I think, is unfair. Uh, you're also not allowing pitchers to learn how to problem solve. So this really irks me how starting pitchers are being used today. But this guy flies in the face of what like a lot of managers would, would do in today's baseball. So I'm glad uh, the Twins have him on the rotation. And if you notice, Tim, um, these moves weren't just for this year. They're for next year. I think Fulmer is a free agent. But Lopez is under control for two more years. And um, Molly is under control for another year. And I'm really liking the 2023 rotation now. Because Kenton Maeda would be back from his double Tommy John surgery. He had this weird... Yeah, Tommy John, then he also had the primary repair. So, like, they did two things in one surgery <laughs> just to rebuild that elbow joint. So, Kenta Maeda will be back, go with Sonny Gray, Tyler Molly, and Joel Ryan. And now there is a four. There's a sustainable four man rotation there. You can use everybody, rest in the world, Bailey over, Josh Winder, Chris Paddock, if he comes back healthy, although it's kind of skeptical. Um, you get a bunch of other guys fighting for that fifth spot. So, hmm. I'm liking how this helps in 2023 almost more than it does. in the the short term, but the Twins definitely made themselves uh, a bigger threat to win the division with these moves.
1: After the Twins lost against the Dodgers on Tuesday night this week, they um, gave up the division lead. They are now tied with the Cleveland Guardians for the AL Central. Um, Do you think it is a must for the Minnesota Twins to make the playoffs this year for Rocco Baldelli to be retained for next season?
2: No, I don't think so. I think Rocco's coming back regardless. Uh, I think there's some things out of his control. Um, you've had, uh, you've had a, so a bunch of injuries. Had, he's had to um, come up with rules to, to uh, navigate Byron Buxton through you know, the regular season uh, with that bulky knee. Um, uh, Sonny Gray's been on a DL twice. Uh, Bailey Ober and Josh Winder have had mysterious injuries that have kept him off the field. Jorge Ocala, which would have been a huge help to the bullpen, He's going to throw like two or three innings this year. He's being shut down because of surgery. Um, he's had some things kind of go haywire on him. And yes, good teams overcome that stuff. But I think it was easy for all of us to see that uh, if you're going to get mad at Rocco, you have to get mad at the front office because mm-hmm. the options coming in after um, the guys I mentioned went down weren't that great. So I wouldn't blame this on Rocco. I do, you know, I, I think I think Rocco generally is a solid manager. I think one thing that irks me is, you know his uh, the quick hurt. He's Captain Hook. You know after two times through the order, he's going into the bullpen. And I don't I don't agree with that all the time. Um, I also don't agree with uh, the time he has. It's happened two or three times this year when he's he had both uh, Carlos Correa and Bucks now in the lineup at the same time. You got to be able to manage your lineup a little bit better than that to make sure you're not you're empty. You're you're you don't have both those bashers in your batting order. But I don't think the seat's hot on the Rocco uh, by any stretch of the imagination.
1: You talked a little bit about the twins pitching staff this year after the trades and how bright it already looks next year. Mm-hmm. And we're only in August. How do you think those trades impact what the Minnesota twins want to do this offseason? is Carlos Correa going to be a player that the Minnesota twins pinpoint and try to resign.
2: I think they'd like to have him back, but the ball's in Correa's court. He can uh, opt out after this year. And it's it's his decision. I mean, there's already reports out there suggesting he's already made his decision to opt out after this year. So um, if that's the case, and the Twins have, you can take that 34 million dollars that they paid him and see if they can land an A starter. I'm not sure. I haven't looked at the free agent list to see who's available after this year. Um, but maybe they find a, a a high quality pitcher to top off their rotation with the money they get back from Korea. We will see um i don't expect him to be back next year i think uh, he's going to reenter the market and try to get 35 to 40 million dollars a year um i at the same time i'm going to say this if he for someone who's making 34 million i like to see a little more offense out of him i like to see his batting average a little higher i like to see some more power and some more run production i don't think we've gotten the offensive production from a 34 million dollar guy i've been fine with his defense he's solid in the field great arm great instincts he's right but i like to see a little more from the plate from old Carlos, he's got two months here to see if he can help push his team over the top and get him to the postseason and maybe get him to a postseason victory in that ridiculous drought. But <laughs> um, I think you're going to be looking for another shirts. We're going to need another stopgap shortstop next year um, for at least half half season before Royce Lewis comes back from his latest knee surgery. So we'll see how this goes. But um, I think we should be looking at uh, uh,
1: how to spend a 34 million that's coming off the books when Carlos leaves. Yeah, you touched on a little bit in your answer there, Lavelle. Um, why do you think playoff wins have been such a problem for the Twins organization? You talked a little bit about the pitching, uh, how Rocco Bedelli doesn't let the pitchers go more than five and a half, six innings most of the time. Do you think that's the main reason behind 18 straight postseason losses, or is it something else? Well, here's the thing. Tim, when you lose 18 consecutive postseason games, you, you should be able to luck up one time
2: and upset someone. <laughs> yeah. You know what? There should be I, I know a lot of these games are against the Yankees. And when are the Yankees ever uh, underdog against the Twins? I get that. But once in a while you've gotta overcome this and and, and win one game. And that, that hasn't happened. Um while we get so wound up about uh who's pitching for the twins, it seems like when they get to the postseason, they also stop hitting. Like it just comes screeching to a halt and Uh, They're able to be pitched to and pitched around and, and they're they're unable to get runners on base and driving runs. And to me, that's problematic too. So it's not just pitching. It's just how the office goes in the tank. There may be some mindset uh, issues going on with how these guys approach the postseason, which is weird because, you know, this, this drought goes back to 2004. So you're talking about two or three different iterations of twins. uh, uh, Lineups that are going through the same thing. That that means that, it crosses uh, different coaches, staffs, different hitting coaches, different players. So it's, it's rather baffling that uh, it's gone on this far. But um, especially the big unfortunate one was the bomber squad. You know uh, how that team couldn't even some runs in the postseason after leading the majors and home runs or setting a major league record with three hundred and seven home runs that year. So it's a, it's a lot of weird factors. But uh, I think this current regime understands the fan base is hungry for a postseason
1: win. And I, I, they try to put this team together with that in mind. Plus, that touches on Johan Santana's best years at the Minnesota Twin, too, going back to 2004 and, and uh, on from then. Um, Rocco Bedelli called the play at the plate with Sanchez and the Toronto Blue Jays one of the most chicken shit things he's ever seen <laughs> in, on a baseball field. <laughs> uh, I want to get your take on that on that play. Rules have changed Collisions are no longer a thing in baseball. What was your reaction to the play and your reaction to Baldelli's comments?
2: I've talked to Rocco about this before. There have been times where Twins players have tried to score and it looks like the catcher has blocked them and the play has not been overturned. And Rocco has said through the, in recent years that it's very hard to get a play like that overturned. So when it was overturned in target field, I fully expected Rocco to go ballistic and he did not disappoint. Um, <laughs> this, this is something that he's been monitoring and uh, and is very well, well aware of, and he he showed it there in his rant and tossing his hat and being upset and some of the things he said after the game. So um, it does not surprise me at all uh, how it happened. It's just unfortunate because um, the rule says if the, if the catcher has the ball before the runner's there, then he, therefore he's not blocking the plate. And Gary Sanchez had the ball before w- w- Merrifield got to home plate. And there was, a, there was a lane for where Merrifield to take. But Merrifield, I don't know, maybe he tried to dupe the umpire and to, thinking he was blocked, he slid into Sanchez's leg instead of going for the out of half of the plate. So it's, it was a rather remarkable play. Um, my thing is this, too, is that Beckman, Beckham's throw from right-left field put Sanchez on top of home plate. I mean, he had to be there to catch the ball. Mm-hmm. Um, it wasn't like he would lean over to his right and try to block the plate plate bring the ball in. <laughs> The ball was coming right to him as he stood at home plate. Um, so I thought I that thought the umpires were incorrect in their assessment that that, that uh, or the replay official was incorrect in his or her assessment that that play <laughs> was interference or so blocking.
1: Yeah. Rocco's reaction was an all time legendary reaction. Something twins fans will remember for a, a really, really long time. Lavelle, you're a hall of fame voter for baseball. Um, where do you stand on the Barry Bond, Sammy Sosa's of the world getting into the Hall of Fame?
2: Well, that's a hell of a question, Tim, because um, I think if you go back 10, 12 years, when I've been voting for about 20 years now. And, um, you know, I think baseball writers meant well in terms of trying to hold people accountable for their past actions, that if they had um, shown some signs of if they failed a test, um, or showed signs of uh, something shen- shenanigans, they would they would not vote for them. Um, but I think in, in in we've taken a lot of abuse over that because, uh, you know, we're we're the media, you know. So <laughs> what does the media know? Yeah. Uh, my thing is everybody overlooked the whole st- the steroid uses era. Um, owners did, GMs did, coaching staffs, training rooms, they all over they all kick the can down the road. It gets to us. We try to hold some people to standards and then we get ripped for our decisions. Um, I think what kind of tipped the scales and I, it, I changed my ways as a voter too because for a few years I did not vote for Clemens or Bonds or Sosa for the hall of fame. But what tipped a lot of our scales to the other side was when Bud Seeley immediately got elected to the hall of fame. We we're like, this is the commissioner that oversaw the steroid era. You know, he was part of, he was part of owners overlooking this deal Not taking it seriously. So once that happened, a lot of us threw our hands up and said, screw it then. You know, there's pride cheaters already in the Hall of Fame. Yeah. And now we're not going to, you know, be that last line of defense. So, so my, my deal is if you change your ways, I think it was 04, when the league toughened toughened this drug policy, then I'll willing to overlook that when I'm trying to evaluate your career. But if you continue to take drugs and cheat and, and test positive like A Rod, like Manny Ramirez, then you're not getting my vote. So I've used that as my line of demarcation between in and not in. So the last few years that Clemens and, um, and Bonds have been on the ballot, I've been voting for them.
1: Hmm. Interesting. It's interesting to see how that kind of progresses and changes over time. A couple yeah, of right. quick ones left, Lavelle. Um, we got a listener question. Uh, Scott wants to know if you think trading Jose Miranda would be a good idea for an ace pitcher.
2: Man, I really like watching Jose Miranda hit. I think that guy's going to be a, a high offensive player. Um, I tell you what, if it depends on the pitcher, if it's an ace like, like if it's a Walker Bueller type, I'd have to consider it. You know, mm-hmm. if it's uh, give me another guy who's who's going to be a horse, McClanahan with the Rays, have Justin Verlander maybe. Yeah, <laughs> I know he's well, old, like, but... a younger version of Verlander, I, yeah, I, I, I would consider it. Yeah. um, you can't hold on to all your prospects because most prospects end up becoming suspects, <laughs> mm. you know? So you want to try to sell high um, when you can, but, and, but the twins could use the ACE. And I, I think that if a team wants Miranda and it's the right type of pitcher, you have to seriously consider it.
1: And then uh, another question from Ryan real quick um, thoughts on when we will see Brooks Lee at the big league level. We get caught in this. These kids come out of college. We're like, he'll blow through the
2: majors. He'll be here in three years. You know, I think Brooks Lee wants, I think Brooks has said he wanted the year after next to be up in the majors. I'll like, go oh boy. So now <laughs> um, this is 2022, 2023, four, five, I would say mid 2027. We'll see Brooks Lee up here. Hmm. Um, if he beats that more power to him, that's three and a half years. So I'm not going to give him four years. I'll give him. Cause I don't think he's playing. I don't know if he's playing at all now since he signed, is he going to start? I may be down in Florida right now, working out. So, 2023 be his first full year, 2024, maybe end of 2026. I could see that. Um, the kid's incredibly talented and it uh, looks like he can hit and he looks like he'd be an impact player. And also, I totally approve of the Twins drafting. I think they drafted like six shortstops or seven or something like that. In the first, <laughs> one of them, right? Have no problems with that because shortstops grow out and fill out differently and they end up having so a lot of guys end up having moved to other positions. Miguel Snow signed as a shortstop, Michael Kadire. Drafted as a shortstop, Trevor Plouffe drafted as a shortstop, Dan Gladden signed as a shortstop. <laughs> and they all end up sometimes end up being in different. Troy Glouse shortstop in, in, coming out of college, so they all end up
1: kind of get moved around. So I don't know problems drafting
2: multiple shortstops every year.
1: Last question, Lavelle, before we wrap up, um, you were the president of the Baseball Writers Association of America, and you made history by becoming the first African American to do so. Touch on what that meant to be the first and to really pave the way for future generations?
2: Well, the thing is is that there, there just hasn't been a lot of African-American baseball writers through the years. You know, when I, when I broke in in the, in the, um, in the, uh, mid, the early to mid-90s, there was like Larry Whiteside at the Boston Globe and a couple of other guys, but there wasn't many hardcore team heads who we like to call ourselves um, covering Major League Baseball. But I always watched baseball as a kid. It was my favorite sport. I uh, grew up watching the 1970s White Sox with Dick Allen and Bill Melton and those guys, you know. So I I dreamed of a career that yeah, that involved baseball in some capacity. And since I'm the worst athlete that Chicago has ever produced, uh writing ended up being the my path to being an amazingly beat writer. So, um I see now there's more, you know, African American sports writers in the pipeline now. There's a few that write for MLB.com, and there's a couple others write for newspapers. So, it's it's starting to it's starting to grow. Um the interest is starting to great. It was an incredible honor um, to serve as president. I think I was 2014, which is the same year that uh, Target Field opened. Um, I'm, yeah, you know, I was incredibly grateful for the honor, um, and I hope uh, you know uh, other kids who aspire to be baseball writers who happen to be African American go ahead and chase that dream. There's not a lot. I mean, there was Tim. There was one year where there were two African American hockey writers and me being the sole the sole baseball writer. <laughs> <laughs> so I was outnumbered by hockey writers for a year. Yeah. Uh, that's how small it is. It comes down to interest. A lot of African-Americans gravitate to, toward football and basketball, which is uh, you know, I can understand, but there's still a lot of us like baseball. Uh, you know, uh, Julian McWilliams covers the Baltimore, the Boston Red Sox for the Boston Globe. Um, does a fantastic job with them. Bill Latson covers the Washington Nationals. Um, there's, a, there's a few more in the pipeline that I'm thrilled to see.
1: So um, Hopefully, you know, it it continues to grow from
2: here.
1: Lavelle, E. Neil III, thank you so much for taking time to join the Minnesota Tim podcast today. I hope you have a great rest of your day. Thanks a lot, Tim, for having me anytime.
0: Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80, live March 20th from The Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City.